0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 143b, Fun and Fashion. Today, we explore some personal objects that belonged to Tutankhamun. From his tomb, we can see some things that the king might have used as a young child. Toys, board games, furniture and clothing all give insights to the life of a young pharaoh. This is a side episode, the story does not move forward in any way, so if you are just here for the main narrative, feel free to skip this one. Otherwise, enjoy some extra details. This story comes to you on behalf of Joan, Rodi, and Philip. They joined the Patreon as Overseers, for which I must say thank you. As Overseers, or Ra, they manage the workforce. They help produce the furniture, the board games, and the clothing that enhances my life. So, as I wallow in decadent luxury, by which I mean a one-bedroom apartment, I am most grateful to their kindness. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. Let's see how a child king played. Last time, we covered the physical details of Tutankhamun's early life. We discussed his mummy, and what that can tell us about his birth and infancy. Now, we can explore some of his experiences. First up, we have toys. The king's tomb had a couple of items that might have been his playthings. By modern standards, these toys are simple. But they are cute, and they got the job done. Among his possessions, Tutankhamun had spinning tops. A set of spinners made of ebony and cedar wood survived in the tomb. They look a little bit like pine cones cut in half. You grab one, stick the pointy end on the ground, and spin. You know, spinning tops. The king also had animal figurines. There was an ivory frog and a small wooden monkey. The monkey is really simple. You could find something similar in many antique shops. But that's not a criticism. If anything, such a classic design proves that for most of human history, toys could be simple and effective. These days, toys can be more complicated, but sometimes there's no substitute for a little animal. Surprisingly, there weren't that many toys in Tutankhamun's burial goods. Maybe the king discarded most of them as he grew older. Once he hit puberty, Tutankhamun might have gone through that toys are for babies phase and thrown them away. That's just a guess, but it is not hard to imagine a prepubescent pharaoh bored of his childhood toys, discarding them in frustration. If he did, I hope he didn't regret it. When I was that age, I got rid of all my old Batman figurines. Sometimes, I still kick myself for doing that. Anyway, beyond the toys, Tutankhamun had board games. A set of gaming boards survived in the tomb, with the appropriate pieces as well. One of these games is quite famous. It is called Senet. Senet takes place on a board divided into squares. There are 30 squares in total, in three rows of ten. The players each had four or five pieces, similar to pawns in chess. They would line up their pieces on one side of the board next to each other. Then, players would throw sticks or knuckle bones to figure out how many squares their piece would move. These dice rolls, quote-unquote, determined the movements. The idea was to move your piece along faster than the other player. You should try to get all of your pieces to the finishing square. When they all reached that final square, they left the board. Whoever cleared all of their pieces first was the winner. That is a really basic summary. There are additional rules and features to make things more complicated. The game requires some skill, but mainly seems to be luck. If the knuckle bones landed in your favour, you had a better chance. So playing Senet is a gamble. On the surface, Senet is just a game. But to the Egyptians, there could be a deeper significance. Senet had religious overtones. The journey of each piece was a reflection of the journey that souls would take in the next life. The Egyptian Book of the Dead, or the Book of Coming Forth by Day, references Senet a couple of times. Apparently, the movement of the game pieces paralleled the journey of the dead. As souls traversed the Duat, the world beyond the western horizon, they faced challenges. In the same way, the gaming pieces must overcome certain obstacles and hazards. If they were skilled and lucky, the player would make it off the board. Likewise, worthy souls would reach the kingdom of Osiris. When they did that, the souls, or the pieces, got to enjoy eternity. So, senet is a fun game here on Earth. But in the after-Earth, it was even more important. Beyond the senet boards, the king also had a game called 20 Squares. This is similar to senet. It involves pieces moving along a board and trying to escape. The difference between 20 Squares and senet is the layout. Senet has 30 squares in three rows. But 20 squares has 20 squares. I guess that's in the name. These squares are arranged differently. There are 12 at one end, and then a long path extending towards the other end of the board. This path of 8 squares seems to be the escape route. Again, some of the squares are marked with symbols to help or hinder the player. Each person would battle to get their pieces off the board first. So 20 Squares is similar to Senet, with a slightly different setup. You might know 20 Squares by a different name, the Royal Game of Ur. The Royal Game of Ur is an old name for 20 Squares. It is called that because the first examples were excavated in the city of Ur. The design of Tutankhamun's board games is slightly different to the Royal Game of Ur but the basic premise seems to be the same. To learn more about this game, you can see some wonderful explanations by Dr Irving Finkel of the British Museum, and also Dig It With Raven. Both of these are on YouTube, links in the description. I recommend checking them out, especially to witness Dr Finkel's magnificent beard and hair. Anyway, one thing that is interesting about 20 squares is its origin. The game is actually an import from societies in the north and east. You can find it from the Mediterranean to Iraq, and even further beyond. So 20 squares was international. Tutankhamun had some prestigious playtime. All of these items suggest that Tutankhamun enjoyed some board games. At least, he liked them enough to have a few different sets. To be fair, it is possible he didn't care much, and people just kept gifting them to him. We can't really be sure what his personal feelings were. But the sets are beautiful, and their presence in the tomb hints at the king's personal preferences. These items in the tomb are not the only connection between Tutankhamun and board games. Coincidentally, the king actually had a board game in his name. You see, when spelling the name Tut Ank Amun, the mun part is spelled with a specific hieroglyph. The hieroglyph mun, or men, takes the form of a game board. This glyph is a long rectangle decorated with three rows of squares. On top of the rectangle, nine little pegs stick out the top. These are the playing pieces. So the hieroglyph men, or mun, is actually a game board. Long story short, Tutankhamun had the symbol of a board game in his name. That probably does not mean anything. The hieroglyph is just part of the word amun, referring to the deity. So it's a coincidence. But it is a cute detail. You can see an image of this on the podcast website. The tomb of Tutankhamun contained several gaming sets. Some of them were prestigious, possibly for the king to use in eternity. Other sets were smaller, portable versions that he could take when travelling. So Tutankhamun may have enjoyed these pastimes, at least occasionally. Beyond the gaming board, the king also had throwing sticks. These were used like dice. You throw the sticks, and count how many of them land heads up, and how many land tails. Depending how the sticks land, you get your score, the dice roll that tells you how to move. Tutankhamun's throwing sticks were elaborate. They were made of ivory, and decorated with images of prisoners. At the top of each throwing stick, there was a carved image of a southerner or a northerner. So every time Tutankhamun threw these sticks, his enemies would tumble about. Depending how they landed, Those enemies would make Tutankhamun's game easier or harder. Maybe there's a metaphor in there, somewhere. Tutankhamun's games and toys are a small part of his treasures. As I said, there are not that many playthings in the tomb, so maybe he threw a lot of them out. Or maybe he had other pastimes that don't show up as objects. You may be wondering about the king's outdoor pursuits. We have evidence for Tutankhamun hunting and chasing animals. I will talk about those in a future episode. When we examine the king's teenage years, we will get to see those objects. For now, let's focus on his childhood, the things he probably used in early life. By day, the child Tutankhamun would play with his toys or indulge in pastimes like board games. As he grew older, Tutankhamun would have taken up other hobbies, and we will explore his adult pastimes in the future. For now, it is time to move on. In chapter two, we leave the toy box and we go to the wardrobe. The king's clothing, his daily garments, survive in spectacular fashion. Among the many items from his tomb, some of Tutankhamun's childhood clothes are still visible today. After the break, we see how a young pharaoh dressed to impress. Chapter 2. Tutankhamun, the prince and then king of Egypt, had access to the most luxurious items. Wealthy, privileged, and pampered, he enjoyed fine food and entertainments. It all sounds a bit much, but it is the reality of these people. Living at the top level of his society, in a social and economic sense, Tutankhamun enjoyed privileges that 99% of Egyptians did not. This goes extra for his clothes. Tutankhamun had an extensive wardrobe, and some of the items in this tomb were ones that he wore as a boy. There are just a couple of these child-sized items, the king probably discarded most of them as he grew up, but a few pieces made their way into the burial, and survived to the modern world. These items range from the cute, to the familiar, to the fabulous. Let's open the wardrobe, and dive in. First up, we have Tutankhamun's mittens. A set of gloves, found in the tomb, give us a glimpse at his style. The gloves are made of cloth, and they come in different types. One set has individual fingers, carefully separated and stitched. The outsides are rough cloth, but the insides are soft, high-quality linen, so his hands would be comfortable. Another pair are different. These ones do not have separate fingers. Instead, there are two pouches, in which he would place two fingers in each. Then, a hole on the side gave room for his thumb. These might be archery gloves, or maybe the king really liked giving the Vulcan salute. It's unclear, but the design is curious. The gloves of Tutankhamun are unusual, because not many survive in the archaeological record. As you can imagine, the people excavating this tomb were most impressed by the find. One of the archaeologists, named Arthur Mace, described the discovery of Tutankhamun's gloves. When he wrote a message to his wife, Winifred, the excavator wrote the following. I made a strange find among the king's clothes today. A child's glove made of cloth, and belonging to a child, I should say, three or four years old. I imagine it must have been one of his own gloves. End quote. Apparently, Arthur Mace was quite touched by this discovery. And you can easily see why. The gloves of Tutankhamun give a tangible sense of his life the things he used in his day-to-day, and the sensations he felt as a young human being. These items made of cloth and padded with linen give you an idea of what he might have felt. Gloves covered his hands, but what about his body? Well, we do have some of the king's childhood garments. Among the thousands of objects kept in his tomb, a set of tunics showed up. These tunics came in a variety of sizes, small for a child, medium for a youth, and large for an adult. The tunics all have a similar design, a wide piece of cloth folded in two with a hole in the middle for the head. Basically, they're ponchos, and like any good poncho, Tutankhamuns came with a variety of decorations. The king's tunics have bright-coloured embroidery in various patterns, we get geometric shapes like squares and zigzags, and many of the clothes have elaborate hieroglyphs, including Tutankhamun's cartouches. So the weavers had to carefully decorate these clothes with symbols of royal significance. I imagine that could have been a stressful job. We also get animal patterns, including one particularly lovely item. A tunic from the king's tomb, called the duck tunic, has two rows of birds, one at the top and one at the bottom. What's so great about this is that the birds on the top are flying, while the birds on the bottom are walking. So if you looked at Tutankhamun in this tunic, the upper part was like the sky, the hem was like the ground. So, the tunic made Tutankhamun into a walking mural, ducks in flight on the body of the king. Which is kind of excellent. The weaver who designed this must have been having a good day. Probably my favourite object of young Tutankhamun's wardrobe is a piece of religious clothing. This item is a faux leopard skin, a piece of linen cut and styled to look like an animal hide. The garment is small for a child. Tutankhamun probably used it in religious rituals. Egyptian priests wore leopard skins as a symbol of their office. Apparently, the child Tutankhamun had his own, artificial version. The fake leopard skin is made of white linen, and it is decorated with red and blue spots. On top of each spot, a small star made of gold fastened to the cloth. Then, at each corner, the dressmakers fashioned paws for the leopard. And on the hem, a leopard's head, made of wood and covered with gold, added to the ensemble. So Tutankhamun, a child king, would walk forward wearing a white leopard skin, with red and blue spots, and glittering in gold. Which is magnificent. To finish off the piece, Tutankhamun's faux leopard skin had a falcon embroidered on the chest. This falcon, a royal symbol, had red and blue feathers, with cartouches on either side. It rested over the king's heart, and on the back of the garment, a line of hieroglyphs added a final touch. A short text on the back of this leopard skin says, The good god, the one who carries his father before Amun, the lord of the thrones of the two lands End quote. so tutankhamun the child king had the very best in sacred clothing on his chest he wore a faux leopard brightly colored and adorned with gold on his chest an image of a falcon fluttered over his heart and on his back an invocation to amun sealed the deal to me this garment sounds delightful If you're not dressing your child in gold-adorned, divinely protected faux leopard prints, well, that seems like a missed opportunity. Tutankhamun's clothes must have been gorgeous. Nicer than 99% of Egyptians could afford or enjoy. We are fortunate that so many of these survived through the millennia. Fabric easily disintegrates, and most of it could have disappeared. And a lot of it did, but enough survived to give us a glimpse at the king's lavish wardrobe. If you ask me, it sounds like young Tutankhamun had style. The fact that so many of Tutankhamun's clothes have survived is partly due to good luck. Good luck, but also good care. You see... When Tutankhamun outgrew his childhood clothes, the king's servants did not throw all of them away. Instead, the royal attendants kept a few items, and they stored them in wooden boxes. Eventually, those boxes went into the tomb. So, when Howard Carter and his team excavated Tutankhamun's burial, they found these boxes. Among the treasures, a wooden chest bore the following inscription quote, The linen chests of His Majesty when he was a child. Back in the day, somebody marked these clothing boxes with a text. They labelled them, suggesting that they were using them for storage. You can almost imagine a servant who had attended the young king from childhood sighing as they folded up his clothes and put them into storage. As Tutankhamun outgrew his garments, some careful attendant made sure to save a few. Later, those items went into the tomb, along with the chests. To whoever that servant was that preserved these garments, we should say thank you. The tomb of Tutankhamun contained many clothes. Most of them were from his adult years, just a few child sized pieces. But with such a large wardrobe, you may wonder how did he choose which items to wear? Well, it is possible that Tutankhamun had a mannequin that he used to display his garments. In the king's tomb, a wooden statue came to light. This statue shows the head, shoulders, and torso of the king. No arms, no legs just a life-sized bust with simple features. The head of the statue is painted. It has red-brown skin, which is typical for males. The eyes are black, with thick eyeliner and eyebrows to die for. Amazingly, the painter even added small hints of red at the corner of the eyes to simulate the blood vessels. This gives the mannequin a more lifelike appearance, and the king's eyes become dark pools of eternity. It is sensational. The king's mannequin has a triangular or oval shaped face. His nose is pointy, and his lips are prominent and fleshy. His mouth dips down slightly in the middle. This is quite similar to images of Akhenaten, Nefertiti, and other people of the Amarna period, so the artist who made this mannequin was probably trained in that style. The mannequin is not particularly extreme or distorted, but it does have small touches of Amarna period art, which gives us a sense of the person behind the carving. Anyway, the wooden statue is beautiful. It is ornate and well-made. But, curiously, only the head and crown are painted. The rest of the body, the shoulders and torso, are just blank. A coat of whitewash covers most of the statue, leaving the main body lacking any detail. This suggests that the statue was designed for modelling clothes. We could imagine it standing on a table or a short column. It looks like the king... And when a servant brought clothing out of the wardrobe, they could put it on this figure. The attendant could try out different garments on the mannequin, deciding which ones look best. Then, when they were satisfied, they could take the clothes to the king, presenting them for wearing. Or maybe Tutankhamun himself used it to decide how he wanted to dress today. Either one is possible. We can only guess. Alternatively, the mannequin could be a tailor's model, something that a weaver could use to measure, style, and cut garments for the king. The mannequin seemed to be life-size, or at least close enough, and most of Tutankhamun's clothes were loose, flowy fabrics rather than tight-cut items. So a figure like this might be suitable for designing his outfits. If that is the case, you can probably imagine some ancient tailor, needles clenched between their teeth, figuring out how the pharaoh should dress. They take some measurements, poke themselves a couple of times, curse a little bit, and then smile as they finally get the item right. Unfortunately, the mannequin does not have any texts or labels, so we do not know who put it in the tomb or why. With that in mind, it is anyone's guess as to the true purpose. Is it a stylish mannequin, or a tailor's model? Is it both, or neither? You decide. Whatever the origin, this is a lovely item. As king of Egypt, Tutankhamun enjoyed the finest products. He played with lovely toys, and wore the most beautiful clothes. In public the young Tutankhamun appeared radiant in gold, bright colours and sacred symbols. On the outside, the king's visible appearance was splendid. Of course, today, we know that his physical life was a bit more challenging. But still, Tutankhamun enjoyed a rich and comfortable lifestyle. These items are fragmentary today, and some of them were probably discarded in antiquity. But what survives gives a glimpse at a distant childhood, and, apparently, a stylish pharaoh. This brings us to the end of today's episode. Next time, we take the next step in the story of Tutankhamun's personal life. In our next chapter, we will tell a story that was lost until just a few years ago. We will meet the woman who made Tutankhamun's childhood possible. Not his mother someone far more important. Next time, we will meet the king's menat, his wet nurse and tutor. Her name was Maya, and we know a lot about her status and relationship to the king. So, join me soon for episode 144, in which we meet a woman who was part mother, part goddess for the young Tutankhamun. Thank you for listening to the show. My special gratitude goes to Linda, Terry, TJ, and Jason, my priest-level backers on Patreon. Folks, you are too kind. With your generosity, I can afford milk to sustain my bones, coffee to sustain my brain, and the occasional board game with which to crush my friends and family. Tutankhamun played Senet, but I play Carcassonne. And thanks to you, I can destroy my opponents and establish my eternal kingdom on the tabletop. To everyone who supports the show on Patreon, thank you from the bottom of my heart. The History of Egypt podcast includes music from many wonderful composers, If you have enjoyed the songs in today's episode, follow the links in the episode description to learn more about the artists. Pieces today included work by Keith Zizza, Bettina Joy de Guzman, and Jeffrey Goodman. They have added their music, by permission, to the show, and I am most grateful. Please consider supporting them. Check them out on their websites, or anywhere you get your music. That's all from me. I'll see you next week. Take care, And may your fashion be as fabulous as the Pharaoh's.